0: This episode is brought to you by our friends at Detroit Boxing Company. They're a clothing brand that focuses on quality and comfort. I have a few of their shirts and they are comfy as hell. And not only are you going to look great, but I swear when I put my shirt on, I could throw my jab cross hook way better. Maybe that's just the placebo effect, but I swear it looked way better. If you want to learn more about the company and what TJ has been putting together, you should listen to episode number 36 of the podcast. I had a chance to talk to him about his motivations and what inspired him to start the company. He's a wonderful dude, and what he's putting out is great. So be sure to check out their website at DetroitBoxingCompany.com, and at the checkout, make sure you use the word CoryCast, all one word, no E-C-O-R-Y-C-A-S-T, and save yourself 10% at checkout. It's time! It's time! treat yourself my good friend john hess is a wonderful human being and a goddamn genius ever since i've known him he's had this ability to be absolutely hilarious and thoughtful and he's just super intelligent there was an article that upstate medical university just put out about how john secured a large grant to help fund some of this research that he's been putting together Alongside with his colleague and fellow PhD researcher Stephen Glatz, their project Brain Genie is being developed to find specific gene markers from blood samples and actually brain samples from deceased donors to help identify various biomarkers that would help identify various psychiatric disorders such as schizophrenia, bipolar, and even autism. John explained in the podcast that those specific psychiatric disorders are really hard to, I guess, quantify on paper. I really hope I use that word. That's a word I never use. Uh, Really hard to prove. Really hard to put on paper. Um, And if you're interested, you could uh, go to the show description below. There'll be a link for the article. I know mm, I myself, not going to lie, I had to read it like five times to totally understand what's going on. So I figured after I read the article, I was like, "John, you should come on, and we'll talk about uh, what you've been working on." So uh, it was good catching up with John, and I always love conversations with this guy. It goes from really like thoughtful thinking to uh, all of a sudden hilarious, gut wrenching laughter. I-, I really, John is one of my one of the favorite people on this planet. And I love this conversation we have. So here is episode number forty three with my good friend John Hess. and there we go so i feel like the best way to start this is just kind of introduce yourself john i know you very well but yeah out.
1: yeah i know we've known each other what, like 12 years now right maybe uh 10th school. grade
0: i remember sitting next to you in mrs cook's graphic design class with yeah Mark.
1: that oh is my that God. was when we first met that was the first time oh my gosh yeah so so yeah, we've been friends for a super long time, and now here we are. Um, so super happy to be on this podcast, man.
0: Dude, uh, only fitting. Only fitting.
1: I know. I know. Um, so yeah, uh, a little about myself. So um, I'm a research scientist. I work at SUNY Upstate as an assistant professor. Um, I'm in the field of psychiatric genomics, and yeah, I'm really into developing different bioinformatic tools to solve kind of prevailing issues in the field of psychiatry.
0: What, why, uh, why did you go into psychiatry? Like what was the pull to that particular science?
1: Yeah. So it was, it it was kind of just one of those things of opportunity meets preparation, I guess. Um, I had a lot of interest in doing something brain related um, in the field of research um, and I was fortunate enough to land a volunteer position in a lab that was doing a lot for psychiatry. Um, and um, with, with just how things kind of played out, um, you know, I found a lot of interest in the work that was going on. Um, I think, you know, when I entered... When I entered this volunteer position, um, it was right on the precipice of the field of psychiatry taking kind of this paradigm shift, I'd say, and it was really exciting to be a part of that, like witnessing this huge change. Well,
0: what contributed to the to the giant shift?
1: So basically, it's just it's kind of this history of um, of labs kind of realizing that there's a pressing need to look deeper at these disorders, which are, um, if you're familiar with how psychiatric disorders are diagnosed, it's, it's using this DSM manual. You may have heard of the DSM before. It's a diagnostic and statistical manual for mental disorders.
0: What does it it do? Is it like a series of questions or is it
1: exactly? Yeah. So it's basically just an interview based checklist that clinicians use for Hmm. determining what a person's, um, symptoms Mm -hmm. are. And whether or not their symptoms that they're basically able to determine from an interview standpoint meet up uh, with the criteria for a disorder,
0: and this is how somebody would get diagnosed with something, right? Exactly, like yeah, schizophrenia so, or something.
1: So this is where um, you know there's some some people who have a little bit of uh, skepticism with psychiatry because they, to them, it's perceived as being uh, complete subjective. Um, and that's not totally true so with, with psychiatry we're able to or clinicians rather are able to reliably diagnose these disorders using simple checklist checklist based items um and it's just an
0: interview it's, it's just asking a bunch interview. Of so
1: not something um so these are disorders that at, at present which you can't simply do like a, a blood-based test for so if like you um for instance, had, had cancer, there's really good diagnostic tools that clinicians can use to determine what type of cancer and staging, you know, the course of the disease. That's not- Right. Possible. And it's
0: through blood testing, right? Yeah,
1: through blood testing. And yeah. that's um, something that we're we're constantly trying to push forward to is how can we obtain a, a laboratory-based objective biomarker for psychiatric disorders? So when I, when I kind of came into the field, you know, this-, you know, this person who was interested in developing a career in science, there was this huge um, outpouring of data that suddenly came forth uh, through these massive international collaborations uh, where people are pooling together data to study how DNA mutations are contributing to psychiatric disorder risk. And this is something that has been chased in different configurations for the better part of say three or four decades. You know, there's some suspicion going back to the 50s to these uh, family-based studies that were done um, that made it kind of, made it kind of, um, made this awareness that disorders of mental illness tend to run in families. So that gives us an idea that genes play a role, but from those very kind of crude studies that are simply looking at how siblings uh, manifest disorders and similarity to one another, um, doesn't really point to what specific gene or set of genes within DNA.
0: Yeah. Right. right? And, and it wasn't like, uh, there was no test being run, right. It wasn't just like,
1: at the time it was nothing
0: you could test for.
1: Yeah. The technology didn't, wasn't there. just wasn't a molecular biology. But they
0: still saw that pattern. Exactly. So they're seeing this
1: pattern and they're seeing, um, you know, there's this growing suspicion that genes play an important role. Um, And it wasn't until 50 years later where molecular molecular biology catches up and now there's technologies available to actually profile the DNA and compare sequences of DNA between huge groups of people where you could do tests, statistical tests and see. All with just a blood draw. Yeah, from a blood draw and extracting DNA from that blood and doing this for tens of thousands of people, uh, some who have a disorder and some who don't. Right and doing these statistical comparisons, um, mapping out across the entire genome those sets of genes that are starting to show some level of contribution to uh, things like schizophrenia, and bipolar right. disorder. Depression. So, so, like that,
0: you just stepped into the into that, that field, steps, and yeah. all of that data was coming out at once.
1: All of it was now finally coming out, um, and there's some really interesting, reliable hits coming. Um, and this was, um, you know. of back stepping just a little bit so there were these kind of smaller scale pilot studies done um, using groups of say a couple hundred individuals um, at most maybe a couple thousand where there were some uh, some clues that maybe uh, one or two genes could be playing a role but nothing was really shining out with much confidence Um, and it became kind of increasingly clear that The clues to what genes in the genome play a role are going to require um, massive amounts of data from many thousands of people to detect a reliable hit.
0: Right. Because Because you need all that other data to, like, kind of cross-reference, I guess you want to say.
1: Yeah. So kind of what it boils down to is in... In psychiatry, these are complex multifactorial disorders, we say. What that means is that there's not one single gene or even a handful of genes that determine one's risk for developing them. It's really a contribution of many hundreds to maybe thousands of genes with very, very small effect sizes in terms of Uh, increasing errors. We're talking about maybe an increase of one to two, maybe 5%, very, very small relative to the background. Risk that you would have if um, you just randomly selected one person out of a group of a hundred.
0: Uh, right, so, right.
1: Yeah, these are because these it's are really it's really such small a fire.
0: smaller piece of like thing to look for, right?
1: Yeah, it's really small, and it's just it it's um, pretty clear that it's like the the answers are not as um, you know scientists would have hoped for. You kind of hope to see a smoking gun whenever you do these big, large, expensive studies of right. maybe one single gene that you can say okay this is the gene that's without a doubt this is it but
0: it's a little bit harder with these kind of psychiatric disorders
1: exactly um you know there's uh different ways to look at it too it could just be um you know it's thought for for some time that maybe the reason why we're not finding maybe a smoking gun for say depression or schizophrenia is because these disorders kind of encapsulate many different symptoms you know no two people Have to have the same set of symptoms when they're going through a DSM interview that are getting yeah right disorder. So you have two people with say schizophrenia who are vastly different. One can have uh, very complex delusions um, and grandiosity. The other may have um, more so the prototypical picture of um, negative symptoms of schizophrenia, where they become more withdrawn and more um, catatonic. So those are you know two very different flavors, but they end up getting lumped together under right. the larger umbrella of a. Disability. it makes sense it, like
0: that all that stuff makes sense because it's when you were talking about uh that it like runs in the genes like one of the things when you go to the doctors the first thing they ask is like does your family have any medical history that we need to know yeah. about right so it's like if uh liver cancer can run in the family then i guess different forms of schizophrenia or depression or what else would you say is also uh like a psychiatric
1: uh, autism, for instance, is something that's okay. too. Yeah. So there, there are many different, um, right.
0: That's a good example. So that's like a very wide spectrum. Not every person spectrum. has it differently.
1: Yeah. Huge spectrum. And then even within, um, so within psychiatry too. So, so autism is, is one rare case where, um, while it, it does now encapsulate many different, um, forms when we talk about autism, there's, you know, Asperger's high functioning people with autism, or you have those who are extremely nonverbal, have a very severe form of autism um, who are very uh, developmentally delayed and cognitively delayed um, there. So within that kind of dimensionality space, there are a few cases that can be um, um, attributed to say one or just a couple of genes that have very, very strong effect sizes kind of analogous to what we see in cancer, maybe not strong right. a degree, but um, maybe you're familiar with, with like the breast cancerous gene BRCA. It's one that clinicians are, um, now routinely testing for if because um, that's
0: a high sign it, of breast cancer.
1: It is, and if um, right. uh, say um, uh, say like uh, uh, within a family you start uh, seeing signs of a mother having breast cancer who has the breast mutation, they often will test then um, the daughter and and maybe the the grandchildren too, to see if they carry that same gene that increases your risk for breast cancer manyfold. Wow.
0: Wow, that's so some, crazy. Some
1: of that kind of that flavoring gets picked up too within the within the within the realm of psychiatry for um, some of those developmental disorders like autism, uh, but disorders that occur uh, typically later in life or at least detected later in life, like schizophrenia, um, the mutations there that are contributing to risk are much more subtle, and that kind of brings us back down to this uh, prevailing challenge within the field: is how can we go about better diagnosing these disorders, um, how can we better understand the biology of these disorders in the brain? Because currently, we have the ability to generate massive amounts of data for for disorders, whether it be brain-related data or data simply from blood or data about the genome or different facets of molecular biology like the epigenome putting all this information together to get a clear answer is very difficult. It's been
0: very, so when you like first approach this problem, was it always like um, to do a blood sample or like you knew, like you would have to get something from a sample. Right. And then was it, maybe we broke it down even farther.
1: Yeah. So, um, so to kind of go through um, kind of like the chronology of this, and the motivation leading up to, um, this new work that I'm involved in developing brain genie um, my lab is one where we 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 tend to focus a lot on the um, accessibility of blood in terms of um, identifying useful sets of biomarkers for for mental illness um, and the reason we, why we look at blood is well a it's very easy to access you know it's mm-hmm. a simple, simple blood draw
0: and you um, can get a lot of information from it
1: yeah. And you can get a lot of information. There's, there's a lot of um, genes expressed in blood that are also expressed in brain. So mm-hmm. there's, there's some good empirical data that have been done through different studies of of humans and if non-human model organisms to show that there are um, many sets of genes that are highly expressed in blood that are also very highly expressed in brain, not all wow. genes by by any means. There's definitely some very brain specific genes that we can't find in blood
0: right and vice versa uh but you just have like you have the blood readily available to test so that was like a good place for you guys to pretty much start
1: from exactly because you know when you're talking about patients who are alive we can't very well dig into their skull and (laughs) brain brain it's it's unreasonable it's impractical and there's very
0: somebody donates their body that's part of what their brain goes to is maybe a study like this
1: Exactly. Yeah. So there, there are very few cases in which we have the ability to look at brain tissue for within the space of psychiatry, typically for, you know, we're talking about people with schizophrenia, it's postmortem brain tissue. So this is after they've died and their bodies have been donated to science. Um, And we're able to look at um, uh, brain tissue basically um, after death and make some inferences about how genes at that point in time, may relate to the person's condition. Um, Do you words.
0: think those, the tests from the brain, produce more accurate results or more consistent results?
1: So in, in some ways, it's believed that if we're studying the brain, where we believe that's where the disorder should initiate from, it, it should originate from the brain because they're brain-related phenotypes, um, that we should have a clearer answer.
0: Wait, what's a, did you say genotype?
1: Um, a phenotype. What so is that? Like the manifestation, basically. Okay. Like a, um, in this case, any sort of type of trait
0: Okay. Um, gotcha.
1: Yeah. So if this is a, a brain phenotype, then naturally we should look at the, the, the tissue of origin of where that's actually manifesting. Right. And um, you know, it's not—it's not, it's not right. like in um, brain cancer where you can like target a tumor or a set of tumor cells within the brain. We yeah. don't know really where schizophrenia exists because it's basically locked into sets of. Dysregulated or, or malfunctioning synapses between sets of neurons, right? Um, or circuitry. That yeah,
0: so much fire. harder. Yeah, you're. I never thought about that. You're so yeah. right. Like it's like you could see a tumor. You could, but when it's all like when it's a mental, and it's a way that you, the brain is functioning and firing mm-hmm. off on cylinders. That's that's what makes it hard to put data on on paper. Right? Really challenging. Yeah. So.
1: We know that if there's um, certain uh, neurotransmitters that may be imbalanced um, in people with with uh, schizophrenia, for instance. And we, we know even from neuroimaging studies that have been done in in thousands and thousands of individuals that there are, there are subtle brain size differences that do occur on average in the population of people with schizophrenia. But that's not enough evidence from those large. Um, group wise comparisons for us to say, do a neuroimaging test on someone to see if their brain has changed because that, right. is, that in itself is not a very good marker for these disorders. So that we, we do have, um, kind of some evidence that we can glean from say postmortem data where we can carve out tissue regions from all over the brain and run our, um, experimental tests on those tissues to see what genes are maybe active or, Altered in some way, or, or maybe not expressed when we expect them to be expressed, and then we can, you know, uh, combine that with information we've um, seen from, say, neuroimaging studies to, to to kind of correlate those two, and even connect it to even further to all different modalities of these large experiments that are done. Um, but still, there there remains this pressing question of what can we actually do to better understand these disorders when people are alive. It doesn't yeah. really help us too much to describe the conditions after death.
0: Yeah, right. We're trying to find a link. Like we're you're talking about to people living.
1: with uh, these disorders for typically decades. Um, so we're talking about uh, what, when we actually do these postmortem studies, we're kind of hindered in some way by the fact that whatever information we get out of the brain tells us a, a, it tells us basically a portrait of what it looks like to have schizophrenia at the molecular level if you've had the disorder for many years and you've been treated right. typically with a hefty regimen of antipsychotics and a whole host of other neurotropic medicines. Right. So, so there's a lot of these, um, factors that come into play, which make the results a little bit more perplexing at times, um, and tend to lead to more questions than they do good answers. So that's what brings us to, that's how
0: you started to develop uh, brain genie, right?
1: Exactly. So, and the, then did I mean, you
0: develop that with your uh, because you're the assistant professor? Who's the other person that works with you?
1: So, the, the other person I'm working with closely on this tool is uh, Dr. Stephen Glad. He's someone who um, I started off at Upstate with um, and as a volunteer, I did my uh doctoral dissertation with him. And I even did postdoc training, so we've been working oh, together wow. part for a of long time almost a decade. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we um, we uh, developed this tool together. To utilize blood data from a large cohort of individuals who were collected as part of this um, large NIH-funded study that was started, I think back in, I think 2013 or 2015 is when. In, the- what was it again? Uh, yeah. It was an NIH study funded funding. Um, it's called a Genotype Tissue Expression Project, or G. What,
0: what do the abbreviations stand for? Do you know?
1: um for NIH is that yeah that's the National Institute of Health oh okay our main um funding sponsor for most studies that are done in the U.S.
0: that was gonna be one of my questions because it's like uh for somebody who doesn't know that level is like how does somebody how does somebody in your position typically secure funds to do this kind of research is it through donors is it through like how does that system totally work
1: yeah so it's um Typically, the NIH would be the go-to if you're an academic research center, um, like upstate, where um, the majority of people who are doing research are are getting their funding through independent means. NIH do you
0: have to still do to like, uh, like remember in high school, the scientific theory? Would you have to do a, like a scientific theory outline and say, please fund my research? Because X yeah. Y Z?
1: So there's a pretty hefty protocol involved in terms of how you go about getting Um, grant money through a funding agency and they're pretty similar. Um, So NIH has sort of their own standards and they vary across um, different funding mechanisms. So the specific project that I, that that I'm working out for brain genie that was funded by the NIH, that's through what's called an R21 mechanism. And that one is a two year funding cycle. Um, And what it's kind of intended to be, um is is a way for a study which typically has um, you know some preliminary data and has some feasibility behind it to get um you know the necessary resources in place so that it can be taken basically to the next level so that it can then be um in an even better place to secure even bigger sets of funding
0: right so usually- i always i always imagine it's like a uh, when you guys secure funding it's like a giant gala You guys just throw a big old party and rich people are like, "This sounds cool." Here's a lot of money, but I think that's my weird fantasy brain. Oh, I
1: wish it was like that. It's actually uh,
0: not as... Holy cow! uh, You are great in those glasses. Here's two thousand dollars for your research.
1: That would be remarkable. So no, it's actually a much more painstaking process.
0: Yeah. It has to be.
1: Yeah. So it's the, the application cycles, um, you know, they occur at different increments throughout the year, depending on what mechanism you're, you're targeting through the NIH. Um, so for, for our 21 grant, we applied for that initially back in 2020, uh, I think it was in September and then several months goes by, you, you just kind of wait and see how it goes. Um, from there, um, the grant application will go to a scientific review committee, and that's made up of um, a large a large set of reviewers, people who are actively um, doing science. Many of which have their own funding. Um, these aren't necessarily people who work specifically for the NIH. This can be um, researchers who are recruited to come for a set of days to review uh, many grants and then determine from this set of grants which are. Most likely to be successful and be innovative and significant and worth the investment. Because all then the if money. You clear, secure
0: and the funds, do you have to like meet all these like hurdles and and yeah. markers basically?
1: Yeah. So there's a, a, a basically a, a huge um, set of of criteria that you're evaluated on um, when you apply for these grants. So. Again, it's a very competitive atmosphere. Um, it's it's basically a numbers game. You have to, um, the expectation is if you're an academic researcher that you're most likely not going to get your first grant funded. And this is not the first grant I've applied for um, by any means. There's been many in the past. Um, so there's a variety of reasons why a grant can fail. Um, it could be for something as trivial as formatting issues, which would get you.
0: <laughs> like yeah, you formatted the letter wrong.
1: Yeah, if you formatted, um, oh, Jesus. Uh, say, things like uh, it, like your Biosketch, for instance, which is sort of like the snapshot of like you as, your, you as a researcher in your career, that's something that's updated pretty routinely. Um, I don't want to say. It's like, annually, how dare you use Arial font? You should yeah. use a
0: 10-point ten, ten point font. You should only use Arial. Make sure the margins are an inch and a half.
1: Exactly, like, so like it's, it's really it's quite stressful because like so, is something as important as um, like the formatting can can mean success or death within that. And, and then if it's, it's, it's the if bracket, they say, oh my nice
0: god, people. you are, have the margins are an inch more than they should be, and they kick you back like. Do yeah, you you take start a, all over again with a yeah, new
1: more space than you're allotted that's it usually they it's
0: oh, God. Uh, kind of
1: a quick way of triaging grants um would be my guess because uh, they're getting inundated with so many there has to be some uh, you know, easy ways to determine off the bat of this huge stack of grant applications who right. who can stay and who who we can actually just kind of set aside
0: so they really um, set the bar high on those kind of things then
1: yeah, um, so so not beyond the trivial stuff of just formatting. Um, there's sets of criteria that are are evaluated within each grant application, um, and and they're relatively fixed uh, for the most part. Uh, but some are weighted a little bit more heavily depending on which mechanism you're applying for. So, kind of broadly speaking, um, there are grant applications that are are maybe more so tailored to. Uh, junior trainee, someone who's who has graduated with their PhD, but they're not yet an independent scientist. Uh, we call these usually postdoctoral fellows or postdoctoral associates. So it's someone who's ongoing additional training beyond their PhD years um, in preparation for, say, applying for a faculty position. And there are specific training grants available to the postdocs. So when that sphere it would be very important for a postdoctoral applicant to demonstrate that they have a a really good training potential um, on a really um, adequate training environment that their supervisors have a strong track record of say publishing in in a specific area in which they're going to receive that training right so that would be you know one major piece of criteria for that grant but that's not something that exists in someone who's say a senior scientist who's been in the game for 40 years because they're obviously not needing to get seek out additional training, uh, unless it's yeah, right. very specific. Um, usually, in those spheres, you'd be a, you would be evaluating that senior candidate for a grant. on Wow, that's crazy!
0: What a process.
1: Um, yeah, you'd be evaluating for things like how this how impactful the science is, the potential for it to shape the field, um, the novelty. Usually, is something that's increasingly given more weight. Um, and by novelty, I mean is the thing you're doing either brand new? Has it has it never been done before, or are you doing something that exists in a new way? Right. So,
0: um, this has well, got to be brand new. Like nobody's ever done something like this, right?
1: So, so I wish I could say that. Um, what, in uh, the honest way, is that there's a lot of people who are thinking about this, um, but very few labs who are actually who have actually distilled down this type of thing to practice and of the few labs that are actively working on this type of um, um, what we're calling uh, brain region specific gene expression imputation. we can break that down. Wow. Later. Dude,
0: that's a freaking mouthful. Right yeah. There.
1: So oh, yeah. Of the people who are attempting to do that, um, no one has really come as, as close as we to having as comprehensive and accurate a method
0: so wow that's still um, cool. impressive though
1: yeah yeah so that's you know it's it's with anything um if you have a good idea there's a high likelihood that's many other people in your field have that same idea
0: No, oh, um, right
1: and you're always kind of playing the game of catch-up in some yeah. ways so it's like who who has the ability to kind of push that work forward quickly enough so that you don't get right. scooped Um, in our case, I don't think we got, we've gotten scooped. In fact, I think we're, we're, we're fortunately a step ahead in many ways. That's cool.
0: So has it just been you and that other doctor that,
1: uh, yeah. yeah. And then we have, um, you know, there, there, as with anything in this, this level of science, you know, we, we, um, the success of like a method like this is, is based heavily on the availability of data that we have to kind of develop the method and validate, his performance so there's a couple of um other labs that we collaborate with so on the paper itself that we're working on right now to actually publish the method we have about a dozen or so individuals who are part of that group um who are who have helped in some way in terms of either contributing data or just kind of you know um, supporting the conceptualization of the tool itself but um yeah it's basically myself who's the the main charge in terms of um I would say the kind of the engineer behind the method actually writing the code to develop it and make it work. Oh, wow. That's um, yeah. crazy. Yeah.
0: That's insane. And it's like, uh it's so interesting. So it's cool because when you say you're working with all these other offices and, mm-hmm. and labs and stuff, I kind of think of it as almost like an open source video game, right? Like Skyrim, like Skyrim yeah. is a great game, but then you have all these cool add-ons that other people made. So you have like all more data, right? And the same thing for the lab is like, you have this great, like a uh, database. Right. And then you mm-hmm. are adding everybody else's database to make this thing only bigger and only quantify the results even better. Right. Like yeah, even that's, set
1: that that's stuff that is the way that we advance science in this era right now is um, like no single lab is, is able to really exist on an Island and be able to kind of be a powerhouse. Yeah. Uh, the kinds of questions that are being dealt with require access to huge amounts of data, which are, typically extremely expensive to generate um and there's a lot of data that have already been generated by you know hundreds of labs so it doesn't make sense for these smaller data sets to exist in these smaller scale labs it makes more sense for people to be pooling all their data together into yeah, a resource right. so that scientists all over can access the data analyze it and make it's like the sense of community yeah that's that's the huge drive and also kind of you know Again, why I, why I decided to stick in psychiatry is just this kind of ethos within this space of kind of teamwork and collaboration and the, and the need to continue striving to push for open access to data and open um, open source tools like Brain Genie. So that's yeah. one where we've... Um, Um, you know, we're not seeking out like a patent on it at this stage. In fact, the tool already exists. It's already out on the internet. People can download it and start running it if they wanted to. And it's it's the kind of. Just install
0: the add-on. You install the add-on, then you can ride the dragons and ride the horses and stuff.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that's, that's the, the hope is that a lot of people are going to be using this tool and making fascinating discoveries with it, even beyond what I'm able to do with it. But That's heard, cool. yeah, we, 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 I'm excited because we do have a tool. It's been one I've actually been working on it for the better part of three years.
0: How do you um, code? Like what is, how are you designing now? We get into that. I guess the technology and software, yeah, like but and you're, bolter, yeah. you're like writing a code for a program <laughs> to run these series of tests. How, yeah. how did you start? How did you start that project? I guess is what I want to ask.
1: Yeah. So, um, so really, the, the the existence of this project is really, in large part, thanks to the availability of this um, this huge resource that was developed by this GTEx consortium, um, the one that was funded by the NIH, to basically map out molecular profiles from people who donated their bodies to science, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people. Um So this resource itself, it's kind of grown in size and there's been different iterations of it. Um, And we were fortunate enough to be able to access this resource, download the data and start kind of toying around with it and seeing what the capabilities of this resource really are. That's cool. So they're kind of in the midst of this, we became aware of a few, um, few other labs who are working on utilizing kind of a different entry point to the brain in terms of making predictions about gene expression profiles of like if somebody people.
0: would have a higher chance of uh, getting schizophrenia when they're over 60,
1: right? Yeah. So, so these are, um, these are kind of the tools themselves are meant to be kind of generalizable enough so that they can be kind of used to make inferences about a whole host of different brain related conditions and phenotypes are right. um, specifically, you know, we're, we're We're not just interested um in schizophrenia per se or or are just brain disorders we're trying to um basically just understand very fundamental questions about how the brain works how it develops how it matures and then what happens when it's when something's gone awry and there's a a disease forming so we um a couple years ago we became aware of these other tools that were you know attempting to take a crack at predicting what's going on in the brain Um, And we saw an opportunity within the space to use our expertise about the blood and its comparability to the brain in terms of the um, proportion of genes that both tissues express to develop some new models where we could theoretically take a blood sample from someone, profile information about their blood to see which genes are expressed.
0: And basically just run it through a system.
1: Yeah, run it through a computer system that has basically a machine learning model built into it.
0: And that's what you're putting together?
1: Yeah, it's basically kind of, um, uh, um, and and fundamentally, it's just basically a a prediction model. It's using um, input about the blood to make predictions about the brain.
0: Cut to the John Hess 1980s montage of you just yeah. hitting zeros exactly. and ones do a green and black monitor. Yeah. Just, just all different views, and all you're just doing is going one
1: one one zero 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 zero, zero one 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 zero zero zero. It's like all this like code <laughs> falling down on screens or pen all about. Yeah,
0: what no, like, like what program are you using to write? like the code for it. Uh, so
1: the one I'm using is called R um, it's um, a tool that was developed, I think like 30 years ago by some biostatisticians. Um, it's not super common within the field of um, uh, well, it, it's one that's becoming increasing, increasingly um, popular, but more so among people who are doing data science or people who are doing bioinformatics. But if you're say a hardcore engineer working at Facebook or Google, um, yeah. It's unlikely that it's one that you would use. You'd be probably using something much more lower level for, for computer programming, like, like I don't know, uh, C++, C Sharp, Java. Right um or maybe something like python which is is it because this general.
0: just there's just so much data going into this is that why you would use well so r?
1: so r was was one i i started off programming in um so obviously i didn't have any type of formal training in programming um, yeah. in college I, you know when i joined the lab i i really didn't know how to program at all um i could do basic stuff like develop macros in excel um, but for the size of the data that we work with, it was becoming increasingly um, clear to me that I needed to work with something that I could um, start to automate some processes and have control over huge sets of data in a reliable way. So then I, I became aware of this tool R um, and took a really t- took a liking to it, uh, specifically because it's. Um, of intuitive, if you're from a statistical background and you're trying to figure out a program, a lot of the routines that are available to you within R kind of make a lot of sense. So it has a kind of a base suite of things that would allow you to run a lot of different statistical tests.
0: So this is all self taught, John?
1: Oh, yeah, it's all self taught. man. Yeah, it took me a oh, better yeah. part of like a year and a half, but I still feel like I'm constantly learning tricks and. Is that
0: what know. you did in, um, like, when COVID hit? You're just like, I'll just learn how to, freaking learn to code.
1: Well, so actually, kind of going back um, further than that, when I started my PhD. Oh wow! Um, yeah, so part of my PhD was I wanted to analyze, you know, these huge sets of data. Um, and before even kind of starting my didactic learning, I was kind of teaching myself, like, off hours how to program. So it took me about oh, a year. God, and a half dude, you're a loss. Consult- kind of proficiency with it. I, we Um, always knew you'd be the smartest one. We always (laughs) knew. (laughs) Thanks man. I really (laughs) appreciate it. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's self-taught, but, um, you know, I, it required kind of like team effort. I, there was, um, some fellow PhD students too, who, who I was working alongside in lab and we were kind of both struggling through these steps, like trying to program in r for the first time so we would kind of bounce ideas off each other and troubleshoot and it was kind of a fun clunky process you know made a lot of mistakes along the way there's probably stuff, not very like many stuff.
0: youtube tutorial hows on r programming is it's, there?
1: it's hard it was hard to come by yeah. yeah i mean now you can probably watch hours and hours of stuff um, really but really in terms of like you can really only learn a language, I think, in terms of like project driven goals, at least for me. Um, so I tried doing stuff like these like Code Academy, like free open source things online where you can. Oh, my follow, God.
0: Dude, like, this is gibberish.
1: Yeah. Like learn how, learn how to code by typing in print and hello world in quotes like the, you know, some very basic rudimentary stuff like that. Yeah. Is this exactly. it right here? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what it looks like.
0: It's just a bunch of like let This is like, uh, remember when you would make a, a MySpace layout? Yeah, <laughs> you, yeah. You were like
1: coding yeah. all of this stuff? And stuff? Yeah. So there's a lot of cool functionality to it. Um, and it's it has a lot of similarities with Python, if that's one you've heard of. Um, it's another really super common tool that um, data scientists are using. Um, oh, Python has a you know a, a really good rep right now for its availability to do some complex machine learning like, um, like deep learning type things for image recognition um, and audio um, audio processing and R is sort of catching up to Python behind it. Interesting. Um, yeah. So so the two are kind of two are kind of going back and forth. You know, there's like this ongoing debate in the field. You know, it's kind of like when people are nerding out, like which is the better tool for solving x problem bioinformatics python or r it really at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're good at one just think
0: or the red Sox.
1: i know it's like this this silliness like they they both kind of in the end of the day do the same thing you just write in a different way uh so and
0: i'm totally fixing my myspace layout when i get done with this <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: that's essentially so. what it is that's what it looks like it's just like a bunch I of know. like parentheses dashes all this other other stuff man that must does it like make a unit like a like a interface or something after you get done coding like you know the myspace layout i, I keep reverting back to it but you would put code in yeah, and then you'd yeah. go to the page and it would actually look like you did something you know what i yeah, mean yeah like it would kind
1: of like compile it and you get like, right. kind of a, like a visual layout so right. so you kind of yes and no there there are There do exist some tools within R, like add-ons. You can like download them. Um, So like people who are much smarter and like who are like legit programmers have developed these add-on tools for R where you can launch applications from R. And you can have servers run these things on the web so that people can actually visualize um, functions that are being run on data without having to actually write code out. Um, It's not very good though for say... Like you can develop games with Python, but I don't know of. I mean, it's, it's theoretically you could develop like a, a visual game with R, but it would be very, it'd um, be like mist. Yeah. Like it, not the, very the, many
0: animations. It's a
1: puzzle game. Yeah. So <laughs> like, like, obviously you would want to write a game in something like C because that's a language where you're, you're kind of going through fewer obstacles for the computer to run the code. Oh right. Like R, it's it's considered like a high-level scripting language. So when you run a command, it's like R exists sort of in the foreground of the computer space. Like you as a user, you're kind of interacting with this tool, which is then in the background talking to the computer through several layers of code to get down to the machine code. So it's a lot slower in terms of the way in which you can interact with data but
0: yeah but that like that language wasn't made for video games that was made for uh you had a term for it uh study science or like yeah
1: data science because it's it's like you want to be able to solve problems quickly you don't want to be sitting there trying to get a compiler to work correctly right and not be thrown off by the addition of some indent in your code yeah
0: you're not trying to play like dust on yeah unless unless you're
1: unless you're developing like a super specific tool that's churning out. Um, huge output on massive data sets talking like gigabytes or terabytes worth of data. Like there's, there's then like, how much
0: data does somebody's like brain tissue reading take up?
1: uh, So it can be quite large. um, If we're talking about sort of like the like the analysis ready data set that I would be interacting with for brain genie um, it can be condensed down to a, a relatively small space of, um, of maybe like a gigabyte or so, so it's it's not huge by any means, um, but it's also not small. Like it's it's too large for you to be interacting with it in the space of like Excel, but right. not, not by any means like the largest scale data that we typically would be seeing turned out nowadays. Right? Um, there's even there's massive massive data sets that now exist about the genome uh, from these huge sequencing studies that take up like terabytes or petabytes worth of space on a hard drive. So there's and are trust. you
0: also finding like not only just these uh are you finding i think you called it biomarkers for mm-hmm. other things that aren't just uh like mental disorders like being uh a higher risk of having lung cancer like we were talking earlier are you finding markers like that too
1: so so they in my work itself no i'm not really seeking that out just yet i mean there's um because you there- focus
0: on just the brain right like the Yeah, that's kind of
1: from like, you know, from the chin up, or if you want to call it, that's kind of where my expertise lies. So that's what I usually focus most of my efforts on. But the tool itself, you know, if we're talking brain genie, the nut, the guts of it are very generalizable, there's no reason why it can't be done for other organs or tissues within the body. Right. Um, In terms of, you know, the brain is not um, unique in the sense that, there are many other tissues that you wouldn't just want to be prodding and taking biopsies of because. It's yeah. Right. Cause the brain is so crucial.
0: Yeah. Um, and that's one of the hardest things too, is like with uh, anything in the brain is, is so hard to study. It's like one mm-hmm. of the biggest reasons why we, we have such a hard time studying dreams. You know what I mean? It's hard to get so things many that are really quantifiable quantifiable de- data on, on paper, you know?
1: Exactly. Yeah. So, so for, for, Establishing causality is like one of the toughest things within our field um, when, it, when you're talking about um, how a gene actually influences a disorder. Uh, so like when we're doing we tend to do these large what we call observational cross-sectional studies because they're, they're very inex- relatively inexpensive to do compared to the, the type of study design where you would get much more information, more direct answers, which would be a longitudinal study. And, and what Brain Genie is seeking to allow us to do is to perform longitudinal studies of the brain and people who are alive without ever having to actually biopsy their brain. We could just theoretically take blood samples from people, you know, routinely or as symptoms start to emerge, that might warrant some sort of, um, you know, clinical insight as to what's going on. Um, right. If we could do that, then we can actually start to develop. More clues and more insights is about like what the what genes are are kind of being dysregulated as a disorder is starting to formulate in the early stages, and that's you know one of the main questions we have is like what happens in early forms of schizophrenia before they become chronic, and it's really hard to access those types of people. Usually, once someone gets diagnosed, they're they're
0: you know, usually in a on, severe stage, right?
1: They're a severe stage, or they they could be put on medications right off the get go. And things like that we have to combat with is how can we get someone who's unmedicated, who's in the early, early stages of psychosis and what's going on in the brain that triggers those events or even events leading up to that. So that's what we're we're really trying to target. But, you know, there's a whole host of other disorders outside the brain that we could be doing this type of work for too. That's interesting.
0: That's pretty big. Like that is a, because I guess if the science can be applied to other parts of the body from like, like you said, the neck down, right. It would yeah. be a very similar process. I would imagine still blood samples, yeah. still testing for, uh, all these triggers and markers, you know?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So really it's just a limit of, um, you know, time, time is the ultimate limiting factor. Right.
0: Yeah. Focusing on so much, like even just the brain alone is time consuming, but then you have all these other parts of the body, like then mm-hmm. the neck down, right. Like, that is a, that's a whole nother field of, of medicine, you know?
1: It is, yeah, and it requires you know a lot of people who have expertise in those different tissues and organ systems and the disorders that relate to those tissues to have um, um, insight as to what's going on. So you know, we could we could you know theoretically just kind of generalize this tool out so that we can make predictions about the entire body about you know from a single blood draw. Um, and it's a matter of doing it in a way where um, you know we can come up with some real biological inferences at the end of the day. So kind of bringing it back to what you know Brain Genie is going to be doing as part of the grant itself is um, you know we we have sort of this tool that exists already in kind of a rudimentary form but still it's performing quite well better than than really what we had hoped for at this point. But we're going to we're going to try to refine it a little bit more and and incorporate some new information new kind of more sophisticated data modeling approaches into the kind of the nuts and bolts of it.
0: And is that something that is that a, a program that you're also writing?
1: Yeah so we're, we're trying to basically fold into the existing program uh, some more deep learning type um, um, mechanisms for um, kind of modeling the data in a way where we can get some more insights. So yeah there's some, some more prog- programmatic stuff that needs to be built into brain genie at this point. Um, but then beyond the kind of the programmatic engineering stuff, we're seeking to apply it to this um, fairly sizable collection of blood data that we've um, collated from. Well, some of it's generated in-house uh, through, through, um, through our lab, through smaller scale studies of uh, schizophrenia and autism, but we've also collated data through collaborations as well as downloaded tons of data through these open source repositories that the government controls and um, usually as part of NIH grants, it's a stipulation that once the grant finishes, if you've generated data, you have to then share it with the community, which works. Oh, I kind of like that. And then collect those data kind of after the fact and incorporate models. So yeah, we have this um, collection around like 8,000 or so individuals where we have. I love to hear that. I love to
0: hear like that. The medical field is not like, no, this is mine. You can't, you know what I mean? Like, I love to hear that. There's just open source sharing with everybody. I love that.
1: Yeah, it comes as kind of a group effort and this is an issue. I mean, you know, years and years ago, that was kind of the mentality because it was so hard to collate that data from the get-go, you know, getting the grant, getting the people recruited to your right. study and then generating the data. It's very effortful. And, you know, part of the system was, is that you could make a career out of a, out of a expensive data set, keep publishing on it, making new discoveries. So the incentive was there to kind of protect your data because it was a way for you to protect your career. And it also yeah. to support a lab with many personnel and many trainees, right. but that system, you know, started to dissolve as we kind of, as it came quite clear that there's only so much information you can glean from smaller scale studies. You need many, many hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people to really.
0: So it's like do you scratch their job. back, they're scratching yours. It's a good give and take.
1: Yeah. So that's the, the model is such that now, you know, no, no one lab can possibly generate enough data to solve these complex disorders. So we have to pool our resources together to make reliable discoveries.
0: Wow, Damn, yeah, that's so cool. That it's so impressive because I, one of my favorite quotes is "Thank God for people smarter than me." But seriously, because <laughs> this is this is like groundbreaking because this could be uh, very important to. Uh, really treating these people, treating people in need, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really the hope. Um, so once we, once we go about, you know, more of the work of the grant itself and in, in applying brain genie to this collection of data we have, what we hope to to accomplish from is identify some, some sets of genes or some biological pathways that are altered in the brain that we can then map onto these disorders that exist within our collection so we're looking not just at schizophrenia from our collection of 8,000 people. We have data on uh, bipolar disorder, uh, major depression, autism, PTSD.
0: And this is the major focus, right? Like that is the focus yeah, of, this this grant, is one of the, the main objective. Things.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, like, even if, say, like the engineering component of this grant um you know, it doesn't pan out for whatever reason. Maybe we just can't bump up the accuracy of our models. We still have an existing model to fall back on that we can readily apply to the data we've collated. And from that, you know, make some, some really cool discoveries. So uh, with that, you know, we're hoping to, you know, have basically an Atlas of genes that we can map onto disorders. And then from those um, you're
0: building a giant Wikipedia page.
1: That's kind of a hope. Yeah. Yeah. that's This kind of like gangbusters uh, resource that people can access and make, you know, additional models off of. um, But what I'm hoping for is that we can have from it, a set of biomarkers that we can start developing classification models, like diagnostic models, so that if someone were to come to a clinical setting, that a psychiatrist has some suspicions about, we could run a panel of biomarkers on that person and see okay we're say 80% confident this person meets the criteria biologically right. for having disorder x that's-,
0: that's what that was going to be my next question was like so you do this grant you're able to be successful in building this program it's like where where do you go from there what's the next steps what do you hope to implement in something like that where somebody could do a blood draw and find if they have all the early signs. That's the, like the, the end all for the the brain genie.
1: That's one of the goals. I mean, we have this very long, long haul vision as to like how we can see this, this tool, this technology being integrated into different facets of biological research and medicine. And are Um, you
0: thinking five years, 10, 20, 30 years down the road? Like how far is the timeline?
1: Oh my God. I mean, it's at this point, it feels infinite. Yeah. It's a matter of, um, uh, like opportunity, technology, access to resources. Uh, there's there's a lot that I would say we could, uh, we could aim to accomplish on our end from just the efforts that we have in place. But there's a lot of stuff that can only be made possible with the right connections, the right tools, um, and the right kind of buy-in from different institutions. So, like, for instance, I would really, I think it would be really advantageous if at some point this type of tool can be integrated into say like electronic health record monitoring. So like e- electronic health records are, are kind of becoming the staple of clinical practice. Now, like your, yeah. your, your medical orders and your histories when you go see the doctor, they don't exist on paper form. They're being yeah, Not anymore. Right. It's electronic system. So even things like when you um, go to the clinic and you, maybe have a blood test on like all that information that then gets logged into an electronic database.
0: Wow. That'd be crazy. Well, this way you can find all these mar- like these crazy markers ahead of time.
1: Yeah. So like kind of integrating that electronic health record initiative with a separate effort, which is bio banking. There's this increasing push within um, different countries to collect as many biospecimens from just regular patients and see how those biospecimens can be linked with medical information to make discoveries about disease and health. Um, there's this really super awesome resource that just came online a couple of years ago from the UK called the UK Biobank. It's one of the biggest to date uh, where they've profiled now pretty much like every facet of biology, of, of, of um, like medical histories and biological data from half a million Britons. And they've released the wow. data, so we we've actually gotten access to that resource,
0: which Do makes you you really put it into the database, or does that information
1: not really apply? So um, the hope is is that the information could apply. Um, it's current we're currently accessing it for a separate project, but it's kind of inspiring to me because I could see a future brain genie where if the the right type of data does exist for say a collection the size of the UK Biobank we could just make predictions off of the samples that are available to us and then link it with the thousands of different conditions that have been tested for. Right. So, yeah, wow, I think that's crazy.
0: That's kind of and well, then are you juggling other projects too? You said another oh, yeah. project you're working on. How many projects are you guys juggling?
1: So, so a funded projects, um, I'm currently on three, um, wow. And then within those, there's always kind of these sub projects that you're always experimenting within science to try to develop new leads and new possibilities for new grant opportunities. So there's always lots of kind of irons in the fire. Um, and there's even so there's there's the, the three main funded projects and then several other projects that are kind of um, supporting that work in different ways, whether it be methods development. So like trying to develop new tools to better the work that's being funded. Or to do work that's not strictly funded right now, but could potentially lead to fundable opportunities in the future. Right. So yeah, there's there's always stuff. Um, Interesting. Lots of collaborations. It's it's usually a backlog of work, and that's my case. That's just my life. Is there's always more work than there is time.
0: Yeah. Right. And this is probably a stupid question, but you get into work one day. How do you know where to start? <laughs> Like, how do you know what project you're working on? Is it just like you're just putting off like a fire over here? You get an email over here. You need to go over there. Like, how do you plan your day?
1: Yeah, it's tough. Time management is like a is a thing that I'm always struggling with. It's like a lifelong struggle for everyone in this type of field. Yeah. Um, especially for, you know, someone doing what we do, which is like you work at a dry lab, meaning you're in front of a computer all day. You're what does a in-
0: dry lab mean?
1: so so dry lab is this term that's come out um to describe people who are doing computational work so oh you, okay i gotcha. as opposed to a what they say a wet lab where you're kind of bound to a bench and you're working with like pipettes and test tubes and running kind of experiments in a petri dish or exactly or
0: like lab. mad scientist style
1: yeah so like when you think of a scientist who's like wearing the lab coat with like the we see you
0: know you're problems. making creepy crawlies in that oven
1: yeah that's <laughs> like not my life at all my life is either well, coding and, in front of a computer. It's, it's been in my home office in front of my laptop, just coding and right. reading papers and trying to write manuscripts wow. and apply for grants.
0: Oh my God, um, that's crazy.
1: Yeah. So, so I guess there's, there's always that rough, you know, there's the, the growing list of to-dos and then yeah. the, this, the day happens and then that to-do list gets usually shuffled around many times. <laughs> so you are kind of always having to monitor your emails to see like what fires are, are needing to be put out. Um, and you know, the hope is always that you're making steady progress on multiple things simultaneously. Yeah. Um, so what it's, it helped it, it help
0: the research to, progress
1: faster. Yeah. It comes down to like self-discipline and time management. It uh, everyone has a different system. You know, I'm constantly writing to do lists to like by hand, I'll write something for the day. Yeah. Like I want to do a, B and C, and maybe I yeah. only tackle a like 50%. And the rest are untouched. But at least, you know, there's that constant reminder of these are the things that are priorities.
0: Yeah, too. And then when you write it down, it makes that connection in your brain,
1: too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because right. I have electronic to-do lists and things I store on my notes app on my computer of just these, like, random ideas. of that never,
0: Those never people. click with me. So much easier for me just to delete them than I do with a written to do yeah
1: i know i know at least with like the hand stuff it's it feels like accountability uh, yeah once it becomes digital it's almost like it sits with there's a disconnect kind of like, yeah like you can easily ignore it. it's just in the background yeah um, it's just, just like, lost now to like this background noise but uh I you know, yeah you
0: know, what i'll do too uh, is i'll put the link to the uh uh the thing that generated this whole thing was this uh article that upstate put out about the whole grant that you landed so i'll put the link for that article so you want to learn more about like what you're doing and it even goes into a little bit about your uh background too how long uh yeah you've been doing yeah. it for that's sweet well cool dude yeah anything else that you want to share
1: about brain genie uh just you know stay tuned just me some cool F- stuff follow,
0: follow brain genie on the gram baby
1: <laughs> just, i don't know it'd be funny to do that
0: <laughs> dude i'm excited to see how this turns out what kind of timeline like if you is there a an expectancy that you're going to finish it next year and then you can come back on and talk about what the finished product looks like or is it going to be much longer timeline
1: so i mean like we have um uh, like a paper, like a manuscript we're working on right now. It's actually in the inboxes of a bunch of our co-authors, And we're, we're hoping to have that submitted to a journal within like a couple weeks. Um, and usually the publication timeline can be anywhere from like three months to like eight, depending okay. on a, if the journal likes it. And if you get like favorable reviews and you're invited, invited to like resubmit, usually you have to make corrections. So that's usually the first log jam after that. Um, you know, the the full project timeline is two years. Um so that's kind of our that's our, that's what we're kind of committed to is having all the work wrapped up within that two year space. Uh, nice. but they'll be kind of incremental steps. Like we're we're not just gonna have two years to do the work and then try to publish it like at the the end of the second year. We're gonna be kind of trying to routinely publish findings as they come out kind oh, of nice. every you know four months or six months or so right so, you know, there'll, there'll be um stuff hopefully steadily coming out in the next like year year and a half that i can talk more about
0: yeah sick yeah dude you're more than welcome anytime this was a lot of fun thanks for doing yeah, is this. This I, I learned a lot and i feel like you did a great job dumbing it down for my neanderthal brain <laughs> <laughs> i appreciate it man <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the show. The love and support that you guys show me is such a wonderful thing from the text messages to social media posts. It's just a constant reminder of how many awesome people I have in my life. If you want to support the show, make sure you subscribe, follow like the podcast. So you don't miss an episode, share it with your friends and tell them what your favorite episode is. If you think yourself or someone you may know would be great on the podcast, reach out to me and we can make it happen. I love putting these out and getting a chance to talk to so many interesting people is so incredible. So thank you for giving me your time and I appreciate you guys more than I can put into words. I love you people very much.